Good morning. Well, I don't wish that Luke would be sick, uh, and we prayed for him earlier, but as I thought last night about what I might pass on to you today as an um, inartful means of doing some kind of a sermon, I, I thought of the opportunity to express something, a very simple thought that I have wanted to say. And the simple thought is just how much I appreciate our church community that we can be a part of. And I hope that even if this is the first time that you've been here, that you will get some sense of the love that we have for one another, for the uh, privilege, uh, our appreciation for the privilege of being with one another and um, speaking into each other's lives and learning something about what's going on. So that as things come up, serious or not so serious, uh, that we're there. And, And I hope that we... Uh, understand that that's really part of God's plan. So thank you. Thank you for uh, the privilege of passing that one thought on to you. But of course, I'm a lawyer, and so that one short thought is not enough. I need to elaborate just a bit. I'm going to do it by looking at a passage that I've, I've looked at before. I, I think I may have even uh, spoken here before, but it's, it's the last chapter of Romans where Paul, who has written this letter to the Romans, is is giving his farewells. He's giving his farewells to people who were co-laborers with him, people who were part of his ministry. I don't know that they were literally part of the same church community, but they probably were. Uh, And in that message, we see something of how the context in which love sees, or Paul sees, uh, the love that was felt within a church community. So, uh, in order to look at Romans 16, I'll ask you this question. Why are you here? Why are you here? You, now you may wonder what I mean by my question, and I suppose you might ask me right back, why, why am I where? <laughs> What's the point? Uh, here might be this place this morning, the University YMCA where we meet. Uh, here might mean this activity, worship at all souls, as opposed to any of a number of other options that we all have on Sunday mornings. Um, In other words, why have you chosen to be here doing what you are doing as opposed to another place doing something else? Or here might be your present circumstances. Why are you there? Whatever you're facing this morning at this time of your life, if there's anything that the data confirms for you, it is that we each experience ups and downs. Some are more extreme than others. And each of us this morning is facing something. That may be what we mean by asking, why are you here? I suppose there's an even broader and and more difficult to get our arms around uh, explanation of that question. The physicist or the theologian among among us might ask, uh, why are we here on this earth in this time and dimension that includes both space and time? Why not another time? Why not another era? Why not another place in the world? I suppose to ask why you are here, you first have to ask the question, where are you? And the problem with that is that when we ask those kinds of questions, we sometimes come to understand things in a way that really is pretty meaningless and not very helpful. I was reminded of a man who was flying in a hot air balloon, and he suddenly realizes that he's lost. He reduces his height, he comes down closer to the ground, and he spots a man below. He lowers the balloon further, and shouts to get directions. Excuse me, can you tell me where I am? The man below says, yes, you are in a hot air balloon. 
and you are hovering 30 feet above this field. Well, the balloonist said, you, you must work in information technology. <laughs> and the, uh, the man said, I do. How did you know that? He said, well, said the balloonist, everything you've told me is technically correct, but it's of no use to anyone. <laughs> well, the man, we're not done. The man below replies up, you must work in management. I do, replied the balloonist, but how did you know? Well, says the man, you, you don't know where you are or where you're going, but you expect me to be able to help. You're in the same position you were before we met, but now it's my fault. <laughs> my point <laughs> is that sometimes the questions we ask or the answers we give ignore the deeper and more significant truth we need to know in order to understand how to negotiate the ups and downs of life. We're taught to focus on the short-sighted, utilitarian view, limited in scope to what can be observed with the eye. And many of us are content to do that. We don't care to know much about the things that we cannot see or hear or touch. Well, the world says that kind of thing in answer to my question, why am I here? We're born, we age, some marry, some have children, we compete, we succeed, we fail, at least insofar as the world defines success and failure. We die, we have careers, we attend Bible studies, we read good books, catch, catch a flick now and then, we provide for our families, we build communities, we care for others, we minister to our fellow human beings, and we sometimes let people down. You can stop at any one of those activities and find an explanation for why you are here that will be believed by many, many people. And they won't go much further in their search for the answer to my question until a family dissolves, a community crumbles, health fails, there's a death, or someone lets you down. And then the explanation usually won't work very well. And we all go looking for a different answer to the question. Or actually, we don't worry too much about the reason for existence when we're hurting. We just want the hurt to go away, if you know what I mean. And sometimes there are hurts that the world can't cure. Well, Paul didn't always hurt. Although we've seen, uh, if you know the texts of his letters to various communities, he endured his fair share of difficulty. But his closing words to the Romans in chapter 16 of his letter can be read to address the issue of our purpose for existence, whether we are hurting or not. And Paul's answer is simple. Our purpose for existence is that through our lives, God will be glorified. Now, don't confuse that with what we're doing in the confession, with the chief end of man being to know God and to enjoy him forever. This is God's purpose for putting us here is to bring glory to himself, among many other things. Life's goal is to give glory to God through Jesus Christ. And I suppose that's the answer to my question, why are you here, no matter how you define the word here. We are created to bring glory to God. So today, I want to look just quickly at the closing to this letter, 16th chapter of Romans, Paul, Paul closes letters, you know, in the way you and I might have closed letters when we used to write them, by sending greetings. The people who received a written greeting from Paul were very special. They were co-workers with Paul. They had, he had known them in one way or another during the course of his ministry. 
And I chose this letter in the 16th chapter because his closing reminds me of the relationships that we have here at All Souls. This is one way that God is glorified through the godly relationships that we have with our fellow believers. The people who received Paul's letter are special for another reason, and that is that for all of eternity their names are in the Bible. That's got to mean something. God had a reason for us to know about this people, these people. And I want to read their names because I want to read the chapter. I'm going to do it in three different sections. The names may get a little bit uh, long and difficult, but he attaches an explanation to who these people were. And again, for some reason, God wanted us to know about them. Although I'm not quite sure why we need to know that Erastus was the director of public works, but there's probably a few in the room who think that's really cool to know that someone was the director of public works. So we're going to read it. But before we do that, would you pray with me? God, guide us now as we work through the completion of Paul's letter to the Romans. Help us to see ourselves in this. As Paul sends greetings to his friends, first let us understand his words as having been meant for us as well. But also let us see these relationships within that church at that time as an example of what you call us to be. And then help us to apply that to our church community here at All Souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this begins at the uh, first verse of chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sincre, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need for, from you, for she has been a patron of many, and myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, that's Priscilla, I think, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my, for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Trophania and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philogus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. And we really have to include verses 21, 22, and 23 because it goes on. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosa Peter, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, the NIV calls it the director of public works, and our brother Cordus greet you. These were people who were believers. Some of them, we can tell, were in need. They were servants in the Lord. 
They had been helpful to Paul in his ministry, and they had experienced hardship and danger for the Lord. They were hard workers. Some were related to Paul, and they were working class. They were city leaders. They were men. They were women. All were valued by Paul, and all were a part of the process that was described in the chapter 1 of the book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what was happening here. The gospel was moving out. Notice in Paul's greeting to these friends the clear message that God values all in his church. And he has a place for each of us in his ministry. Perhaps this is an encouragement to always be seeking to discern God's will for your life in ministry. Each of us should be able to imagine our own name on this list of people who were greeted by Paul. Each of us should be playing a role in the ministry to which Paul was called. Consider how you view others who work in the church. Be very careful anytime you preclude someone from service of one kind or another. Your action may, may, may be unfair to that person, also may be denying God the opportunity of working through that person to accomplish great things. Notice also Paul's continued concern for constantly lifting up those who were around him within the church. The, the last several chapters of Romans focus on how we can have good relationships as fellow workers in the Lord. And that seems to be a important part of God's plan for the church. Here we see Paul living one principle that will result in a church as effective as it possibly can be in doing God's work. Strong, godly relationships in the body of Christ grow only when they are fed. That's one role that the church plays. Sometimes we send greetings to others out of our own emotion. We miss them, we're worried about them, we, me, I'm proud of them. I don't think, though, that Paul sends his greetings here out of a desire to make himself, that is Paul, feel better or to express some emotion he is experiencing. He wants them to be encouraged. He wants to lift these people up to better equip them to do the work God has called them to do. And that's the relationship we are called to have with our fellow church members. You know, that, you know what it means to nurture and encourage and help someone grow. Uh, plants are an example of that. If you don't nurture a plant and encourage it, it won't grow. I remember one time when my wife, Jody, placed a couple of new plants on the edge of our property and they were low when they were planted, which meant that twice I mowed them over so that the plant still was there, but it cut off the top. And that was not nurturing the plant. <laughs> and it also was not nurturing my relationship with Jody. That was for sure. Well, God has given fellow workers in Christ to you and to me. They are your family. They are in your church. They are missionaries you support. Paul's example tells us it is worthwhile while to feed your relationship with other believers. Paul had to use Phoebe to transmit his message. Today we have email and telephone and who knows what else. Why not let someone know that you appreciate them for who they are and for the work that they're doing for God, especially pastors? 
So, one way God is glorified is through the relationships that we have with his church, within our church. Next, Paul tells us that, he is, that God is glorified as we avoid certain things. In this case, Paul tells us to avoid something that he says is of the devil. It is evil. Look at the next scripture, starting at verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus, our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the, na- of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So in the midst of a community, a church that God has given to us, we are to be careful and to watch for those who would take us down the wrong path. Unfortunately, some things that happen both in and out of churches do not glorify God, and this is an example of those things. Paul talks about the two things that we should be on the lookout for, those who cause division and those who put obstacles in the way of believers. These things don't glorify God. Now, there's been much debate, I should mention, here over just who Paul is talking about and talking to. He, he may have witnessed these problems in the church in Corinth. He may have known something was going on in Rome and wanted to caution the church there. Um, we don't know. Um, but we can speculate. But what we do know is that he is identifying something that we should watch out for. Whatever Paul's reason for the warning, our own experience within the Christian culture that is the American church, it seems to me, proves that great damage can be done to the church when these problems exist. How do you figure out when you're confronting the person that Paul's warning you about? How do you ensure that you're not one of them yourself? Well, first, I don't think that Paul is talking here about just discussion within a church or even disagreement that is properly motivated. There has to be a way to talk out things, and sometimes we don't exactly see things eye to eye. No, this is something that's more serious. He's talking about the wrongly motivated person who brings division or obstacle into the church. And this happens when, by smooth talk and flattery, people are deceived. It happens when the motivation is not to discuss a sincere concern, but instead to build up the ego of the offending person. Paul says such people are not serving our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites. So what do you do when you're confronted with someone who causes division or creates obstacles? Paul tells us this, be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. And I think that by that, that principle means that we are to know the problem for what it is. We're to be aware of what might be going on within our church, but we're not to engage it. Not certainly in a way that does harm to the church body. You don't argue with the person, you just avoid them. And you know that the problem that he's describing is of the devil, and we are to be reassured that the devil has been defeated. Not by me, and not by you, but by Jesus on the cross. So I wonder, are you frustrated now by a confrontation with someone who Paul is warning you about in this section? Does it help to know that you don't have to worry about it? You can turn your back and focus your attention on what God has called you to do. 
And that's what we're supposed to do. So, God brings glory for Himself as He establishes communities like ours. He brings glory to Himself as we avoid the problems of a divisive church body or a particular person. And now we come to the final message of Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's the most significant in my view. God is glorified through the establishment of the gospel in each one of us. It's the glory God receives when the gospel is alive within a church and alive within an individual's life. These last verses constitute a doxology giving praise to God for all that he is and for what the gospel does in an individual life. And I want you to notice one thing as I read this and talk just a bit about it. And that is that a person's circumstances do not determine one's ability to give glory to God as the gospel is alive within you. We may be talking about someone who is in the deepest throes of depression or who is on top of the mountain because of some great humanly thing that has happened to them. Here's the text, starting at verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now for starters, don't get upset at Paul's use of the term, my gospel, in case you noticed that as I was reading it. The context shows that he's not talking about something that is uniquely his, and he's certainly not talking about something that originated with him. He's giving glory to God for God's gospel, made Paul's because God has determined that it would live in Paul, just as it can live in you and me. And that's an important point. Because nothing that originated with any man, not even Paul, could give to us the spiritual life and stability that is possible through Christ. Paul's gospel is the message given to him by Jesus Christ, and it's the secret to life. The truth of the gospel is the means for spiritual life and stability. It's because it is true that we can claim the power of the gospel living in us. Now this principle could not have the power that it does were it not that it originates with God Himself. No self-help or improvement program will give you spiritual life because no such program that figured out how to conquer the grave uh, exists. Only Jesus has done that. And this is how God can be glorified no matter what you and I face. It's because of the message of the Gospel living in us, whatever circumstances we face, it's because of that that God can be glorified. Even physical death itself cannot take away from God the glory that He will receive in the life of a believer, for a believer will never see death. Let me tell a story now that will, uh, I think I've told once or twice before, but it, and it will resonate for some more than others and hopefully a little bit with everybody. We've talked before about Pastor James Montgomery Boyce. He was an important part of my faith upbringing and just the reading that I did. And I think he was also an important part of Pastor Luke and Deborah's faith upbringing because he was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia where they attended. And I think where Luke was brought to faith in Christ 
was at that church. Dr. Boyce was a relatively young man when he died, and he, he did die, it seems to me. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I realized that when he wrote the words that I want to read to you, he was approximately my age when this happened. He was a great theologian and a wonderful teacher. I didn't know him well, but I enjoyed God in him. Early in the year 2000, Dr. Boyce announced to his congregation that he had been diagnosed with liver cancer, a particularly serious type. Now that by itself is not so unusual. Many people get sick, some get seriously sick, and some experience physical death. But I want to share with you, as a closing to this text, is a part of the statement that Dr. Boyce read to his congregation after he had received that diagnosis. And as you listen to this, please consider whatever unsolvable situation you might be facing right now. One that someday you'll be, or one that someday you'll be in, in the context of the purpose for your existence, the question that I ask you at the beginning of my lecture. Think about where you are today or where you might be someday. Dr. Boyce explained to his congregation back in 2000 that he had been feeling quite ill for some time, leading him to go to his doctor, who after a number of tests made the diagnosis that I told you of. And he then said this, so I, this is Dr. Boyce, so I feel that I have very good guidance, and at the bottom line is, of the treatment is that I'm at the Fox Chase Cancer Center. I'm in the care of a man named Dr. Paul Engstrom, and what I'm receiving at the moment, beginning last Thursday, is standard chemotherapy for cancer. It's hard to tell where that comes out. Liver cancer is a very serious thing. They do get response from treatment in a percentage of cases, but it's relatively small. And as far as I can tell, we're doing the best thing we can. A number of you have asked what you can do. It strikes me that what you can do, you are doing. This is a good congregation and you do the right things. You're praying, certainly, and I've been assured of that by many people. And I know of many meetings that have been going on. A relevant question, I, I guess, when you pray is pray for what? Should you pray for a miracle? Well, you're free to do that, of course. My general impression is that a God who is able to do miracles, and he certainly can, is also able to keep you from getting the problem in the first place. So although miracles do happen, they're rare by definition. A miracle is an unusual thing. I think it's far more profitable to pray for wisdom for the doctors. Doctors have a great deal of experience, of course, in their expertise, but they're not omniscient. They do make mistakes, and then also, as you pray, pray for the effectiveness of the treatment. Sometimes it does well, and sometimes it does not do so well. Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God glorified himself? Well, he did it at the cross of Jesus Christ, and it wasn't from, by delivering Jesus from that cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could call down from my father 10 legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And, and yet that's where God is most glorified. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things that I would stress, says Dr. Boyce. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We've talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what he was doing. 
and something bad slipped by. No, God does everything according to his will. We've always said that. But what I've been impressed with mostly here is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it, to conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. God's not only the only one who's in charge, God is also good. Everything he does is good. And what Romans 12, 1 and 2 says is that we have the opportunity by the renewal of our minds, that is how we think about these things, actually to prove what God's will is. And then it says his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Is that good, pleasing, and perfect to God? Yes, of course. But the point of it is that it's good, pleasing, and perfect to us as well. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. So that's the way we want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do. And about six weeks after after he read that, he passed away. So I wanted to share that statement with you because it illustrates how we can be successful in life even when we face ultimate failure in the world's terms. That is to say, our physical death. And I wanted to show you how it is through, among many things, the church body that we are blessed and God is glorified. Life's goal is to give glory to God through Jesus Christ. What's great is that if the purpose for my existence is to glorify God, then when I'm disappointed by my circumstances in worldly terms, I nonetheless have the opportunity to fulfill my reason for living. For as we all learn along the way, earthly success has nothing to do with eternal spiritual success and giving glory to God. Now, if you want to know how God has been glorified in your life, I encourage you to think back over, say, the last year or the last week and consider how your life has changed because of your involvement in this church, for example, particularly as you may have faced difficult circumstances. And I know in some cases, in my own, for sure, the change has been substantial, and it's because of the gospel being at work in our lives. And I hope that what you have learned is that God will receive glory as a result of your life, no matter what your circumstances are. And you can be proud of that. God allows us that kind of pride. But you say you don't want to endure uncertainty or pain or illness or even death. There's nothing wrong with that emotion. Jesus had it himself when he asked that the cup of his Father's will be taken from him, if at all possible. But Jesus went to the cross nonetheless, and it was good. And, my, and you and I will face difficult circumstances, and even our physical deaths, confident in the knowledge that we are believers. And as believers, we are eternally secure in the love of God. Paul says that we should consider who shall separate us from the love of Christ. You know the rest of it. And there's nothing that can cause that separation. So facing whatever circumstance comes into your life confidently in the knowledge that you are eternally secure in your salvation, accepting God's will for your life not as a necessary evil, but instead as that which is good, pleasing, and perfect for you, 
allowing God to renew your mind to avoid the pattern of the world, all of these things will bring glory to God. And that's why you are here. And you know that your church community here at All Souls will walk with you through whatever, you're fa- whatever you face. So let's pray. Father, we give you praise for that community that Paul spoke to. We gave you, give you thanks for Paul. We give you thanks that in all of those ac- actions and words, you were glorified. I pray, Father, that the same would be said of us here at All Souls, no matter what we face as we walk through the life you've given to us together as a church body and bring glory to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.